0: Good morning, faith family. So glad to see you this morning. Uh, Pastor Matt is actually up worshiping with our friends at First Baptist Church of Decatur, where his son Hunter is currently serving as part of their worship teams. We're excited that he's able to be there today. And I'm excited that I get to be here with all of you and lead us in our study of God's word this morning. I'll begin as Pastor Matt has been beginning these sermons the past few weeks by asking you to open up your Bibles or your Bible app on your device and navigate over to Acts chapter. 4 that's right thank you for not leaving me hanging yes acts chapter 4 so Acts has been, things have been going pretty good so far, right? Like Jesus has ascended, giving the promise of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. They went and waited in the upper room. Pentecost came around and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Tongues of fire. The apostles are speaking in different languages so everyone can hear. Peter stands up and explains to them what's happening, gets to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people say, well, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. And all of a sudden there's like 3,000 extra members of the church just right there on that one day. And they're they're. They're fellowshipping together, they're learning together, they're eating together, they're hanging out with each other in their houses, and the church is just growing daily. In fact, then things pick up in chapter 3, there's like now miracles happening. Peter and John go up to the temple to pray, and they heal a lame man. And people see that and they're like, oh my gosh, that guy's been there for years. What's going on here? And now Peter gets to preach again and tell them all about Jesus and call them to repent, to turn from their sins so that their sins may be wiped away. And that's pretty much where we left off last week. And you wanna talk about growing strong as a church? Like the church in Acts, is growing strong. That's what's going on. Until like we get to chapter four. Like everything's going really great and then we get to chapter four and the church kinda hits its first roadblock. Okay, So that's what we're going to see here So if you will follow along with me As we read together Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 31 While they were speaking to the people The priests, the captain of the temple police And the Sadducees confronted them Because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people And proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power Or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers, and the, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his anointed. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing, and signs, and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now we pick up pretty much where we left off last week. Peter is preaching there in Solomon's Colonnade at the temple, and then these other people show up on the scene. This is basically part two of the story of Peter and John healing the men there after they went up to the temple to pray. And this part, the second part of this story, can kind of be broken into two sections, each with their own theme. And the theme of this first section is this, persecution that threatens. Persecution... That threatens. Now, before we move on, it's important for us to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand what exactly it is that we're talking about. In other words, what exactly is persecution? Because this is a word that gets thrown around a lot lately, especially online. Like it's used mostly, we claim persecution mostly when someone strongly disagrees with us and we don't like it because we've kind of forgotten how to have civil discourse with people in our world, just frankly. But that's not what we have in mind when we talk about persecution here. So here's just a simple definition of what persecution is. Persecution, according to the Collins English Dictionary, is cruel and unfair treatment of a person or group because of their race, religion, or political beliefs. And we can think of a number of examples of actual persecution in our day. We can think of the persecution of the Uyghurs currently going on in China. We can think of uh, persecution of anti war activists and draft evaders currently in Russia. We can think about the persecution of brothers and sisters, of fellow Christians in various places around the world. And this persecution, it can take the form of all kinds of different things. It can certainly take the form of words that are meant to hurt or ridicule someone, but it can also be all kinds of other things, from the government, from the community, from the family. It can involve all ostracism or isolation or theft, destruction of property, divorce, physical harm. And then, of course... It certainly can involve death for some. But here in Acts chapter 4, this is where we find the first instance of persecution against Christ's church. Now, the centuries since then have been full of instances of persecution, but this is the first one. And what does this particular persecution look like? Well, it takes the form of a false arrest on trumped-up charges, Peter and John, they've healed a man and they are preaching and telling the people about Jesus there at the temple. So then this group of priests and actually the chief of the temple police and then this group, the Sadducees, which are kind of like the rich and important religious leaders, they confront Peter and John. And why do they do this? Well, Scripture tells us because they were annoyed. It's an interesting choice of words. In fact, this, is, this words only used one other time in Scripture, annoyed. Well, think about things that annoy you. Any of you have a little brother or had a little brother growing up? They can be annoying, right? Or think about like a mosquito. Like you can't get rid of the mosquito. It won't leave you, alone, like, buzzing everywhere. Like, that can be really annoying, right? Or like the tag in the back of your shirt is just itching you all day long. You just want to rip it out. It's annoying, like it's an annoyance. Like an annoyance is something that bothers us. It gets under our skin, but it's really no real threat to us. It's not going to end us in any real way. It just bothers us. And that's kind of the attitude that these religious leaders have toward Peter and John. They're not threatened by them. They're not threatened by this healing. They're not threatened by their preaching in the name of Jesus. They're just annoyed by it. They're bothered by it. They don't understand the power that is at work in front of them. And what annoys them about it is it's not even what they're saying about Jesus. After all, Jesus is gone. Like, as far as they're concerned, that problem's been dealt with. Rather, what annoys them specifically is what Peter and John are saying about what Jesus, what effects Jesus can have on the people. You see, not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but Peter and John are claiming that he leads to resurrection that he leads to new life for all those who believe in him. This is especially problematic for the Sadducees because they don't believe in anything miraculous at all, especially resurrection from the dead. Do not accept it. They don't accept it about Jesus. They don't accept it's going to be available to anyone else. So they're just annoyed that this is happening at the temple. So they arrest Peter and John. They take them to the Sanhedrin, which is like the high religious court for the land, and they put them on trial. And it's at this point that I'm sure Peter and John remembered a very important lesson that they had learned earlier, and that lesson is this. The church will have trouble in this world. The church will have trouble in this world. I'll say that they remembered this lesson because they had heard Jesus teach it to them multiple times. A couple of examples, John sixteen thirty three. the night before Jesus died, he literally tells his disciples, In this world, you will have trouble. Pretty straightforward. Earlier than that, in Matthew 10, 18, he told them, you will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them. Now, these guys in the Sanhedrin, they're not governors and kings, but they are the ultimate religious authority in all of Israel. So it's no surprise that Peter and John find themselves in front of them. It shouldn't surprise them. After all, Jesus had warned them that this would happen. But it also shouldn't surprise them because they're simply following along in the steps of Jesus. He had gone before them. You see, Jesus knew that they would face trouble in this world because he faced trouble in this world. In John 15, he said these words, that the world hates you. Understand that it hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will do all these things to you on account of my name. And so Peter and John are experiencing that. They followed in Christ's steps here. In fact, standing here before the Sanhedrin, they're literally standing where he stood. Jesus himself experienced a false arrest and a trumped up charges. He was also hauled off to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, led by Annas and Caiaphas, the same guys leading this interrogation of Peter and John. He stood there in the midst of these 70 religious leaders to be condemned for nothing. And now Peter and John are literally standing right there where he stood. And Peter, of course, knew this because he had experienced it. He had seen Jesus standing in front of the Sanhedrin because he was right outside in the courtyard. In fact, that's what makes this next part so remarkable. That as Peter and John find themselves standing where Jesus stood, facing the interrogation of the Sanhedrin, they demonstrate how the church is to respond when faced with persecution. And it's this. The church's response is to stand together and tell the truth. The church's response to persecution is to stand together and to tell the truth. You know, we often contrast the Peter that we find outside Jesus' trial in the courtyard with the Peter that we see on the day of Pentecost. We wonder, how can this guy, who denied Christ three times just a couple of months ago, now stand in front of a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem, and preach about Christ, unashamedly? And that's a question worth considering. But I think the greater contrast is between Peter in the courtyard outside Jesus' trial and Peter right here standing where Jesus stood. He not only had seen that Jesus stood there, he saw what was the result of it. And him just being outside and seeing what was happening to Christ caused him to even deny that he even knew the guy. But now he's standing there. And the implication is that he's potentially facing the same consequences that Jesus experienced, namely death. And so, how does Peter respond? How does he respond now that he finds himself standing where Jesus did? Well, one way to say it is that he stands his ground. He doesn't back down. The question that the Sanhedrin ask him, is meant to trap him and John. By what power and whose name have you done this thing? Now, if they answer, we've done it by the power of the Lord God Almighty, then the Sanhedrin gets to go, oh, okay, well, we are the authority in Israel over what the Lord God Almighty has to say to his people, so you guys gotta like submit to us and do what we say. If they answer it in any other way than that, then they're blaspheming God. They're committing a heresy, and there's clear punishment that people deserve whenever they blaspheme God. And as the ultimate religious authority for things that happen at the temple, the Sanhedrin definitely has the authority to dole out whatever punishment that they think is appropriate. But that doesn't knock Peter back. He stands his ground. Because this isn't the same Peter that stood in the courtyard outside Jesus' trial. This is a different Peter. And what's changed about him? He now has the Holy Spirit. He is now a person empowered. And additionally, this time, Peter's not standing alone. John is with him, which means the church, the gathered together people of God, they are standing together. And so when faced with persecution, Peter and John, they stand and they stand together with others in the church, but this standing is not a passive act. They stand for a purpose, and that purpose is that they stand to tell the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, take note of some ways that Peter does this in relation to the Sanhedrin. First of all, Peter's extremely respectful. In our day and age now, whenever we deal with people that disagree with us, or maybe even people that are attacking us, people that maybe, whether we see them as enemies, they view us as enemies, we will often respond aggressively. We'll respond with snark, with sarcasm, trying to stick it to someone. That's not what Peter does. Look how he begins. Rulers of the people and elders. He addresses them in a way that communicates the respect that their offices deserve. At the same time, though he's respecting them, he doesn't shy away. He's very direct toward them. Look at what he says next. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, well, let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he directly answers their question. And he does so even when speaking those words not only is unpopular, with the crowd he's saying them to, it's extremely offensive. Extremely offensive. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now, Peter's used this language before. He uses it in Acts 2, talking generally to the people. He uses it in Acts 3, talking to the people at the temple. Some of you were the ones who called for the release of Barabbas. Some of you were the ones who were chanting, crucify him. But when he looks at Annas, at Caiaphas, at the 69 other members of the Sanhedrin, it says, Jesus whom you crucified, he means it literally. You're responsible, directly. You sent him to his death. You crucified him, and God raised him. Remember, the Sadducees don't accept resurrection at all. Peter says, God raised him. You crucified him, God raised him. He's clear, he's direct, he doesn't shy away, even when it's unpopular, and even when it's offensive. But he also backs it up with scripture. He comes in with Psalm here. That this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then in addition to that, he also calls them to respond. It's not the same kind of response he gives. They don't ask, what must we do to be saved, which prompts him to offer a way to respond. In Acts chapter 3, he just gives one. He calls the people to repent so that they might, their sins might be wiped away. But here he's giving them everything they need in order to understand that a choice lays before them. And we find that in what he says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now look, the truth is that the popularity of that particular message has not necessarily increased over the years. It continues to be extremely offensive to people who hear it. And that shouldn't surprise us. Scripture tells us that that would be the case. But also it is something that we still need to speak directly clearly with support from scripture to not shy away from even though it might be unpopular or some people might even find it offensive we shouldn't communicate in a way in which is snarky or sarcastic or looking to stick it to someone but in a way that is caring and compassionate because we understand that when we say you jesus whom you crucified that those fingers are also pointing back at us we didn't stand in judgment of him and sent him to be condemned but it was our sin that he took upon himself when he hung on that cross. And God did raise him from the dead to demonstrate that he alone has power over sin and death, so that he is the only one that has been given to us by whom we might be saved. If we turn away from our sin, and we put our faith in him, our trust in him, I know that perhaps there is some today that when I walk out and I call us faith family, maybe you think that doesn't apply to me because I don't have faith in this God. I don't believe in this Jesus. Well, I implore you today, repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ. Trust him for the salvation that he alone deserves. And let us know Ask us questions. See how we can encourage you in your faith. Let let us get you hooked up with a faith family, with people here that you can stand together with, that can help you, whatever you might face in life. We have a place called The Connection Point back here in the back part of the room. After our time together, stop by there, speak with one of our leaders. We would love to share with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But look, if you do, if you do turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you've probably picked up that that doesn't mean that everything's going to be like ponies and rainbows, right? Jesus said, in this world, we'll have trouble, and we will. But in the midst of that trouble, together we can stand and we can tell the truth, but that's not all we do. You see, the church's response to persecution is to stand together and tell the truth and resist the temptation to be silent. Resist the temptation to be silent. Um, I went back and looked, and the last time this particular passage of scripture was taught here at Brick Hills, was in 2016 uh, by Pastor Jonathan Bean. And so for any of you have come since that time, Pastor Jonathan was our dearly loved global pastor for many years here at Brick Hills. He loved the book. No one talked about the book of Acts with more passion than Pastor Jonathan did. Uh, He was a great friend, and we had the opportunity to go on lots of trips together in various parts around the world. And on many of those trips, we spent time with brothers and sisters facing persecution unlike any that we've ever known in our own lives. And Jonathan was so compassionate to sit and to listen, to to realize that he was a steward of their stories, that it was important for him to hear what they're having said, to learn from them. And he would always want to teach that to all of us who were around him, to help us learn about what persecution is and why persecution exists. And so this idea that I know is not necessarily completely original to him, but this is something I heard him say on multiple, multiple times. And it's this, the goal of persecution is to silence witness. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin was after. Look at this, they observed the boldness of the apostles. They were amazed because these guys were uneducated and untrained. These weren't guys that should be able to do this. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Hey, these guys look like that guy that was here two months ago. They're acting like him. They see the man that's been healed. He's he's right there in front of them. And it says, Scripture tells us, they have nothing to say in opposition. They can't deny what's happened and is happening. So instead, they try to silence it. They called for Peter and John to come back, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's the goal of persecution, to silence the witness. Now, why is this a temptation? Why is this a temptation to Peter and John that they need to resist? It's a temptation because things are about to get a lot worse if they don't comply with what the Sanhedrin is telling them to do. And we're going to discover as we go through Acts, that's true. And if you know church history, you'll know even more how that's true. That Peter ultimately is going to be crucified upside down because he won't be silent. John's going to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos because he won't be silent. But empowered by the Spirit, they resist the temptation they say we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard how can they do this how can they do that knowing what power these guys have over them well it's because they know something greater and they know this that the church's ultimate power and authority is found in God alone The church's ultimate power and authority is found in God alone. They give their reason for why they won't be silent. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. So in other words, uh, hey look, Sanhedrin, I hear you, but I mean, who has the authority here? God does. And who's giving them the strength and the boldness that they need to stand and to tell the truth and to resist the temptation? God is. God is with them there. And God is with us whenever we find ourselves facing trouble. You know, in many of those trips to Jonathan, I heard personal stories of persecution of all different kinds. Of people that have been beaten, beaten, imprisoned, who have been ostracized by their community, kicked out of their family. Parents whose children had been taken away. Spouses whose spouses had divorced them. Uh, all kinds of things, even some brothers and sisters that I met in person that I know has since then have paid with their lives for the sake of their witness. And when I think about that and I compare it to any measure of persecution I've experienced myself, which frankly has basically amounted to like when I was in high school being extremely made fun of. Not to say that's not persecution, It, it is but it seems to pale in comparison to uh, some of those other examples. But the reality is that the power that those brothers and sisters I met around the world have to resist the temptation to give in to that persecution and to stay silent is the same power I have to resist whatever temptation I might find as a result of any persecution I might face. That power is found in God and God alone. And God actually has plans for persecution. He uses persecution in our lives in surprising ways. He basically like 828s it. like as in Romans 828. He like works it together for our good. Nick Ripken and his wife served for uh, decades on the field, and they have become kind of an expert on the persecuted church around the world. They've spent a lot of time with various brothers and sisters in many of the hardest countries learning from them. And in an article entitled Persecution Normal and Expected, this is what Nick wrote. Scripture makes the point from beginning to end. Persecution is the norm for followers of the one true God. It is quite simply like the sun coming up in the east. Persecution in itself is neither good nor bad, it just is. Certainly Christians are not to seek persecution. But at the same time, Christians need, to give, need not give in to a crippling fear. God's highest purpose in persecution is to call his people closer to himself, to refocus their attention to the suffering of their Lord. When followers of Christ suffer willingly for their Savior, it gives their faith value. That kind of suffering also increases witness. Believers experiencing persecution are invited to place their focus on their Lord and on their own witness and obedience. When I think about that quote, I think about one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and that's Joshua 1, 9, where God tells Joshua, Hey, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, God has commanded us by his authority, and Jesus has sent us by his authority. And the Father has given the Holy Spirit to us, his presence and power with us. What else can we do but strive to obey him? And when we struggle with that, to cry out to him for his help. Which brings us to the theme of the second section, which is this, prayer that emboldens. Prayer that emboldens. Once they're released, Peter and John return to their own people. I love that phrase, their own people. That means the ecclesia, the gathered worshipers, followers of Jesus, the the church and they would tell them what's happened with the Sanhedrin and even what the Sanhedrin has threatened against them, which basically is a threat against everyone in the church. And so what does the church do? They pray for boldness. And boldness may seem like something that's unusual for them to pray for. After all, we've already seen that boldness is readily present in Peter and John, at least. We read that the Sanhedrin observed the boldness of Peter and John. But this particular boldness, it wasn't just a character trait. I mean, think about Peter. Like Peter could certainly be described as bold, right? Jesus asking his father, hey, who do you guys say that I am? Peter steps up. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. They come to arrest Jesus. Who pulls out the sword and chops the guy's ear off? Peter. Bold. Brash might be another word for it. Doesn't always work out for him, but he's certainly bold in his manner. But again, when we look at Peter... Standing in the courtyard of Jesus' trial, boldness is the last thing we see in him. And So this is not the kind of boldness that just came to Peter naturally. It's just a part of his personality. This boldness came specifically from God, even more specifically from the Holy Spirit. We read that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he is bold. Now, you won't find boldness on any of the lists of spiritual gifts. You're not going to, like, take one of those inventories and all of a sudden it's going to tell you, oh, you're bold. And you're like, great. But here it is. The Spirit is gifting his people boldness. Boldness a supernatural, God-given spirit-empowered boldness to stand and tell the truth and resist the temptation to be silent. God gave it. Peter and John had it. The whole church needed it. And so they prayed for it. And here's some distinctive marks of this prayer. First, the church's prayer is submitted to God. It's submitted to God in the sense that it's given to God. God is the one that they are praying to. But at the same time, it's in submission to God. Look how they begin their prayer, they call him Master. Your translation might say Sovereign Lord. You know, they did not ask for boldness for their own sakes, they asked it for God's sake. They were under his authority, striving to obey his call, and he wanted them to be bold, so they were asking him to give them boldness. They recognized that their lives were no longer their own, they were bought with a price. The church already knew what Paul would later state in Philippians 1.21, where he said that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to live in the way in which God was calling them, they needed his help to make them bold. And so their prayer, like their lives, were submitted to God in submission to God. And the church's prayer, we see, is anchored in his word. It's anchored in God's word. Just like Pastor Matt often encourages us to do, the early church prayed the Psalms. Here they are praying specifically Psalm 2. And what David wrote and sang about the nations raging and the rulers plotting, they have seen that fulfilled in their own time, in Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel who conspired together to crucify Christ. God's word written generations ago, it was useful in their present lives just as it's useful in our own lives. And when we think about prayer, we can sometimes worry about what should we pray or or how exactly should we pray? So just going to scripture and praying scripture, it helps us. It helps us answer those questions. And it helps us because we should pray scripture because we know this is true. And the particular scripture that they are praying, it reminds them of a particular truth, which helps them understand this, that the church's prayer, it is reliant upon God's sovereignty. It's reliant upon his sovereignty. All that happened specifically in regards to Jesus, on one hand, it can be seen as a tragedy. I mean, the promised Messiah rejected and killed by those he came to save. But this all happened at God's direction, It was his plan. The rulers did whatever God's hand and his will had predestined to take place. You know, the persecution of the Sanhedrin, it would prove to not be full of empty threats. Things are gonna get worse than Acts. But nothing that happens throughout this book, nothing that happens in our lives today can thwart the will of God. Now, this doesn't mean that he ordains every act of persecution done against his people the evil of persecution like all evil it is a result of the fall of sin but there's no way persecution will ever have its intended effect and that's because if the church has a right understanding of God's sovereignty it will serve to grow our confidence and our courage And that means that the church here, they can follow Jesus' example that Paul wrote about in Philippians 2. They can set aside concern for themselves so that the church's prayer is concerned for others' salvation rather than their own safety. The church's prayer is concerned for others' salvation rather than their own safety. You know, it's interesting that they don't continue to pray the rest of Psalm 2. Because if you read more, the psalmist is asking God to ridicule these leaders, to terrify them by his wrath. Maybe it's more likely that they have the end of Psalm 2 in mind, where the psalmist comes back, and about those same rulers, he asks God to help them to receive his instruction, to serve the Lord, to rejoice in him, to embrace his anointed. The church understood that though they may be seen as enemies, Jesus had been very clear in how we respond to enemies. We love our enemies. That's why in consideration of the Sanhedrin's threats, that they ask God to give them boldness to speak his word and to perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus so that they, the Sanhedrin, might be saved and so that others might be saved. God has blessed them already with seeing the fruit three 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost. But even just earlier, What happens after Peter and John preach and Solomon's colonnade at the temple? Yes, they're arrested and they're hauled away. They're persecuted. But also, God brings another 5,000 or so to faith in Christ. The goal of persecution is to silence witness because the result of witness is that people come to know Jesus. And that's the only way it happens. You're here today because someone was bold enough to tell you about Jesus. So when the church prayed, they nowhere asked for their own safety if it meant their silence. Instead, they asked for boldness, and that's exactly what they got. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God boldly. So, Brick Hills, in light of this, how can we answer the question? How can we grow stronger? We have eight pursuits here at Brick Hills, and and the last one we ever talk about is this. We pursue faith, so we risk intentionally. You know, we have faith that salvation is available in no one else other than Jesus Christ. We have faith that he has called each and every one of us to make that truth known among all peoples, both here in our community and literally around the world. We have faith that this gospel witness will result Not only in the salvation of many, but also in our persecution of one form or another. Yet we also have faith that God will strengthen us, he will sustain us, and he will grant us the boldness we need. And so we intentionally take risks. We risk our reputations. We risk our social lives. We risk our standing in society. We will even risk our lives because our pursuit of faith, of trusting God, it leads us not to risk recklessly, but to risk intentionally for the sake of others. Because as God makes himself known through our bold witness to the gospel, he also grants faith to repent and believe. And he adds to our number those he is saving. And I think we might then all agree that that is well worth the risk. So Brook Hills, number one, be bold. Be bold. I think that may sound challenging to some of us. Because unfortunately, if we'll kind of get real for a moment here in this family conversation, we'll have to confess to each other that it doesn't take much threat for us to quiet down not much persecution to keep us silent. It can just be a busy life. An unwillingness to be inconvenienced. So us not let those things keep us down, let's be bold. It doesn't have to be something big and amazing. One way to think about a way to be bold, I would say would be this. Say something when saying nothing is easier. You can probably think of times in which The Spirit prompted you in some way to possibly say something to someone, but it was a lot easier just to, no, I don't don't know, maybe another time, maybe later this isn't right. Say something when saying nothing is easier. Make the most of opportunities you find yourself in, given in life. Pray with someone, meet a need. Share your story. Try to create some opportunities. Get to know some people. Be aware of who's around you. Introduce yourself to your neighbors. Invite a classmate to go hang out and see how God might use it. And then lastly, don't rely on yourself to give yourself boldness, to make yourself bold. Be bold as God gives you the boldness you ask for. This leads us to the last point, pray. Pray. As a church, we're studying Acts to learn from the church to know what they knew and to follow their example. So today I want to challenge us to do just that. So the worship team is about to come up. They're going to get ready to be leading us in musical worship. And as they do, I'm going to ask you if you will please stand. In each of our worship gatherings, we always have a time of corporate prayer, like Pastor John led us in earlier, where he prays on our behalf, but we all listen in agreement with him. That's why we use first-person plural language, we, us, when we are leading those prayers. But it's also good for us to have times of corporate prayer in which we lift all our voices together, as we see the church doing here toward the end of Acts chapter 4. So just a moment, we're about to put a prayer on the screen, the words of a prayer on the screen, and we're going to read this all together as one, lifting up our voices to God in prayer. I'll lead us, so let's do that now. Father God, you are our sovereign Lord and our good master. All power belongs to you. You are the creator of all things who has formed our inward parts and knit us together. And not just us, the people of your church, but also all the peoples of this world, even those who actively oppose you who rage and plot and take their stand against you and your anointed, who work against your will and persecute your people. But God, you have promised none may stand against you. You have encouraged us to not be afraid or dismayed, for you are with us wherever we go. So we come to you, Father, as those who personally know the reality of Jesus's warning. In this world, we have trouble, but Christ, we hold fast to your promise that you have overcome the world. Even so, we confess too often we have remained silent when given the opportunity to be your witnesses. Father, please forgive us. Consider those who may threaten and persecute us, who may see us and you as enemies, and grant us great love for them that echoes your own love. Give us strength to endure knowing our momentary light affliction, as producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Holy Spirit, Empower us with boldness that we might clearly and confidently tell the truth of the gospel of our savior, Jesus Christ, to all peoples, at all times, and in all situations. May the miracles of our transformed lives be a sign to those around us that you alone are God grow us strong as a church that we might go strong to our community and our world. Give us faith to risk intentionally and add to our number those you are saving. We ask all this in the name of Jesus.